Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Happy Amblin, the premier Spielberg, Adam Sandler retrospective podcast detailing the directorial works of the aforementioned Steven Spielberg and the film starring Adam Sandler. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me today, as always, is Matt Garingo. That's me. How are you doing, Matt? Oh, I'm just fantastic. Yeah? For the people in the future, where, in the future where either one or both of us have died of the coronavirus, because <laughs> we are currently in the middle of the great reopening of America, uh, we were supposed to record uh, a Star Wars thing today that I hope you've heard by now, because <laughs> it should be out before this, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're having, more specifically, I'm having technical difficulties, so we're not recording that. Instead, we're going to talk about Twilight Zone, the movie. Directed by Steven Spielberg and also a couple other people. And three other people. <laughs> George Miller from Mad Max fame and Happy Feet. Joe Dante from the Almost Jaws 3. And, of course, Gremlins and a bunch of other great shit. Uh, and John Landis, who no one has any mixed opinions about. Yeah, nothing nothing in John Landis's closet. You know, some might say John Landis is the ultimate helicopter parent. Whoa. <laughs> This is a movie. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know why Diego just uh, said something completely horrible, um, <laughs> what overshadows this movie more than the fact that four of the heaviest hitters in Hollywood of the 80s um, came together to make a Twilight Zone movie is because uh, this movie's more famous for a horrible, horrible helicopter accident. That happened on set that killed actor Vic Morrow and two children. And unfortunately it was caught on tape. If you are uh if you're on YouTube at four AM and you're morbidly curious. Although I, I think I might be gone by now. You used to, remember the early days of YouTube where you could just find like this incredible nightmare shit on there? Yeah, but I I was too much of a chicken shit to actually go through that stuff, and now I'm like, thank God I was a chicken shit, because, like, there's some shit online you, you kind of catch once in a while, like on Twitter or Instagram, and you're like, why did someone share that? And I've, uh, I've seen it. Yeah, and I, I have not, and I don't feel like it is necessary to, honestly, because that's a very real it's not, tragedy. Yeah, it's it's more just like, and like just not to not to critique a fucking horrible thing but like you can't see anything so it's really don't worry about it too much mm. but it's still it's awful it's 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 one of those things where it's like we'll get into it but it's something where really it just serves as evidence of like this this should never have been filmed the way it was like if you yeah. watch it it's like this this shot this scene the sequence had no reason to exist. And someone should have caught that at some point. But it was not. So, 
Yeah, good good times on the Twilight Zone, the movie. Should we talk a little bit about the history of the Twilight Zone franchise at this point, or do we kind of want to linger well, on this I think, for a little bit? I don't want to be disrespectful, of course. Yeah, I think all we can really talk about is everyone knows the Twilight Zone. Rod Serling has like lasted five years, influenced a lot of people. Uh, I, the only real notable thing is that a Spielberg started on Night Gallery, <laughs> so we can like that was like one of his earlier works was Night Gallery, which was the episode I totally just phoned in and didn't even bother rewatching. <laughs> I did all the heavy lifting on that one, so yep. you're well, welcome, we, world. I don't even remember. We just talked about stuff that had nothing to do with Night Gallery. No, no, I, I talked about how it's not very good. Yeah, <laughs> I had seen it and I remembered it, and I was like, I don't need to rewatch that. Um, and I think the only notable thing is I think this is Spielberg's first um time working with an intellectual property that's not his. I believe you're right, at least on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, obviously his TV work was not. He didn't create any TV shows at the time. This feels like kind of what Spielberg will start to become more of, where, like, now he's a brand, and it'll be like, you know... I I really feel like if there hadn't been the tragedy that kind of overshadowed everything, there'd be tons of videos of Spielberg being like, oh, I grew up on the Twilight Zone, and it was always my dream to bring the Twilight Zone to the big screen, and then use that to springboard a revival of the Twilight Zone, which I think this did. Um, yeah, an actual television series uh, would come around 86, so like mm-hmm. three years after this aired, or two yeah. years after it premiered. And instead Spielberg did like Amazing Stories. Do you remember that? Uh, I've never seen a single Amazing Stories thing. I just know of its existence, one and time, that's it. One time in like the early 2000s, the Sci-Fi Channel marathoned all the Amazing Stories episodes. And I watched a bunch of them, but I that's the only time I've ever watched Amazing Stories. And uh, you know what? And I, I gotta I have to correct something from our Poltergeist episode because um, fucking all right, I did the one I failed to do the one thing I promised myself to do because we got a lot mm-hmm. of comments saying we pronounced Toby Hooper's name wrong. Yes, we did. And I was insistent to you that it was Toby Hooper. <laughs> And you were like, no, it's Tobe Hooper. So I just followed you. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to look up Mick Garris talking about him. And whatever, however Mick Garris pronounces it is the way we're, we're going to say is the definitive way. And I didn't do that. Um, so good good job, me. But Toby Hooper... excellent job, Diego. Yes. Toby Hooper worked with Spielberg again on Amazing Stories. And he directed a few episodes of that. Remember that Spielberg miniseries Taken? From like the, uh, again, from like the no. early 2000s? You don't remember that? No, I never saw it. It's not great, but it was like really hyped as being like Spielberg doing aliens again, you know? And mm. it's kind of like a like story of alien abduction told over like multiple decades. Like it, it's, it's all right. I never finished it though. Like I've started it like six times and never finished it. Oh. Um, and yeah, it's you know, but I I guess they did work together again. So 
That's a good sign, at least. Yay. Yay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the four mini, like, well, because this is an, an anthology film, mm-hmm. for, for those that don't know. Because I guess just just up the up front, uh, right off the bat, do you like this movie? All things aside. Um. Well, here's, all right, this is where it's going to get a little weird. Because I like half this movie. Because it's an anthology movie with four directors on it. The fucked up thing about it is the two seasoned directors who are the producers of it, who are basically are the reason it exists, and the reason we're doing this retrospective, are the two stories I do not like in this. And it's Joe Dante's and George Miller's entries that I end up really liking. Yeah. And it's just so weird, because it's like... I mean, Spielberg's one almost feels like he wrote it in a weekend. And just kind of like, alright, here, here you go, Twilight Zone. And you're like, fine, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would just expect a little more from Spielberg in this time. And I think the Landis one, all things considered, is like a real mess. And just doesn't really work at all. Yeah, it, even without like the horrifying, grim, unacceptable reality. Yeah, it, it's just not good. <laughs> it's not good. And then the Spielberg's one's more like you know Spielberg sentimentality shit, mm-hmm. and it's like fine, but it's just kind of like you kind of watch it and then you're like, what's what's the point? <laughs> yeah, and... like his honestly like duel is like way better like one yeah. scene of duel is way better than this i just you know? don't and obviously totally different stories but mm-hmm. like that that shouldn't be the case i feel and maybe it's just the fact that like i i gotta give them some credit that they at least tried to mix up the type of stories they were doing because a lot of people remember like the twist endings in twilight zone and a lot of people remember the horror elements of twilight zone but there were that like those stories like went all over the place in terms of emotion. And so I got to give him credit for at least trying something non-horror. But the two that work are the horror ones, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a shame. I mean, I, I don't know. This, uh, this is an odd entry in it. And it really is more known just for the unfortunate accident. Um. And I believe it soured the relationship between Spielberg and Landis. Yeah, well, they were like friends up to that point, and Spielberg is in the Blues Brothers, which is one of like his only like acting roles, quote unquote. You don't like Austin Powers three? Oh my god, he is in Austin Powers three. Yeah, and it's like a genuinely funny moment in that one. He backflips out of the scene. He tells Austin Powers to shut the fuck up because he's won an Oscar. <laughs> I mean, if I was Steven Spielberg, that's how I'd want to be portrayed in a movie. So describe that scene to the viewer who um, does not need to see Austin Powers and Goldmember. Spielberg is making an Austin Powers movie starring Tom Cruise, a lady whose name I can't remember, <laughs> Danny DeVito as Mini-Me, and everyone's favorite, Kevin Spacey as Dr. Evil. Oh, God, I forgot. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, DeVito's mini-me is pretty funny. <laughs> he 
just gives the finger to the camera. Oh. See, I've never been a fan of the Austin Powers movies. Um, but I, I remember liking Goldmember. Oh, really? <laughs> that, yeah, that was the, the one, one that I remember being like, oh, no, this is the funny one. But obviously I haven't revisited it in a long time, and I, I don't care to. The first so. one really holds up. Hmm. Second two are hit and miss. Hmm. There's a running gag in the Austin Powers movies. The fat bastard ate a baby. Oh, that's right. I think I've brought that up on here. <laughs> yeah, it's like Snowpiercer. Yeah, those move except Snowpiercer did not make like three hundred million dollars at the box office. No, and no, for it some did not. reason, everyone was okay <laughs> with the running gag that fat bastard ate a baby and wants to eat more babies. I know what people taste like. I know that babies taste best. None of that has to do with the Twilight Zone movie. No. Uh, But I guess we can kind of use this as an excuse to just shit on John Landis some more and hype up the great Joe Dante and George Miller. I mean, I I hate to admit, but like I love John Landis's run at that time is like they're they're among my favorite movies like i consider blues brothers like in my top five movies of all time like i love wow. that. i love that movie and it's you know it's just a shame he fucking sucks <laughs> <laughs> and like I'll, I'll tell you i i probably when it comes to landis like i'm with him up until like the stupids which is like 1996 like, that's how far I'll go with Landis in terms of liking his movies. You're like, not a fan of uh, Blues Brothers 2000? Oh my god, that movie is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that movie that bad? That doesn't make any sense. I've never seen it. I just know its reputation. John Goodman's in it. And he's like, he, you know, John Goodman is hysterical in life and other movies. <laughs> He has no jokes in that movie. He does nothing funny. <laughs> it's it's baffling. No, there is like an entire subgenre of film that has John Goodman but does nothing with him. And I'm not going to list them, but there's a lot of recent ones. Uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane is like the last one I remember that utilized him to like his full potential, and he's like really good. Yeah, in that he's movie, fantastic in that. He's so scary, which he's. He's so rarely, like, that scary. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember, like, Oscar buzz going around. Like, obviously that was never going to happen. But, yeah. like, film fans were like, this is the best supporting actor nomination. He got uh, Tony Collette. Ideally. Yeah, he really did. And I, I, God, someone give him another role like that. Just really let him chew on some heavy shit. Well, someone needs to give him something because he doesn't have, I don't even think he has an Oscar nomination. Which God, is a, which is so a crime. Like, how does I mean you, you got like Barton Fink, which he's amazing in, mm-hmm. and I would even take like Walter and the Big Lebowski. Like, I think that's Oscar worthy. Oh yeah, yeah. I rewatched that for the first time like two months ago before this all shit went down. Mm-hmm. Holds the fuck up. I know. Really good it's, movie. It's it's one of those movies that like you're always worried about because it's been like co opted by shitheads. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's it's Dark Knight Syndrome, kind of. But it's so fucking funny. 
and he's yeah. so good in it. And I love that movie because he like ends up being inadvertently right about like everything. <laughs> like he's clearly <laughs> wrong, but he called the whole plot. Like, <laughs> but yeah, it's... John Goodman, just outstanding actor. Give him, give him some work with Spielberg. Yeah. Was uh when he did uh Inside Lewin Davis right? He's in that for like ten minutes. Yeah, he should be teamed with the Coen brothers, like Ballad of Buster Scruggs, too. Yeah, they're good at picking, like, they know when to use them, you know? Mm -hmm. It's, they haven't let them down yet. They haven't, it's a little weird, I think, isn't Lebowski the last time they worked with Buscemi? Which you don't think about, because you kind of think of him as one of, like, the Coen's go-tos. Yeah, and he's more of a Sandler go-to now. Yeah, which is weird. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I would love for uh, Buscemi to come back. Another guy yeah. who I don't believe has an Oscar nomination. No, but he got a lot of Emmy love from uh, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, which is which you know, is good. That's good, good, good for him. Yeah, he, he should have gotten an Oscar nomination for playing Romero in Spy Kids too. Do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? Great, great trilogy of movies. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the best. I think best this is trilogy. like our third time talking up the Spy Kids movies on this retrospective. Oh, they're so good, and they were so important to little young Mexican Diego. Yeah, like hey, you have there, no idea. There you go. Yeah, I wanted to meet Steve Buscemi on an island and have him explain <laughs> his fear of humanity's inadequacy to me. <laughs> Um, much like the inadequacy of the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah. So I guess um, the roundabout thing I was trying to get to is that um, I hate uh, Landis's story, which is this weird, like, if I remember correctly, his version is like a combination of multiple other Twilight Zone stories. Like, he took elements from, like, a few and put them together. And it doesn't work at all. But um, <laughs> what does work, in my opinion, is the opening to this movie with Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd, which is like I think classic. Like how if you're like a scary short film, even if the punchline is a little weak, but it's weak in that it's like it's the setup to the Twilight Zone, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I like that that scene is kind of like that's how you start this movie. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know. Like it, I was not feeling this until um, after Kick the Can. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, I, it really I, took me a minute. I consider the opening of this like like if it was a short film on its own of two guys who are talking about the Twilight Zone who then realize like that the punchline is oh they're actually in a Twilight Zone episode. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's a perfect little short film, and it's fine. Like the setup, it's very basic. Um, and Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd are both really good in it. Oh yeah, yeah. Saints, Saints. Um, I mean, uh, uh, for actors. I don't, I'm not gonna. <laughs> we know not to claim that for every artist yeah. we like now. But. Play that clip of um, Dan Aykroyd saying, "Aliens won't visit us because of 9/11." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey, Albert Brooks. 
All right, I gotta talk. Innocent. Let's, let's just talk about how dumb that is for a second. <laughs> <laughs> that aliens who can travel across the entire universe, who could possibly visit Earth, and the amount of horrible shit that happens on the planet Earth, <laughs> that because nine eleven was important to us, it must also be important to aliens. <laughs> We are currently, the day we're living, right now, more people are dying daily of the coronavirus than died on 9-11. And, but the aliens won't contact us because of 9-11. <laughs> Thanks, Well, Danny every boy. day is its own 9-11 now. Oh, hey. Yeah, there's, there's your 9-11 joke. There we Fucking. go. Wish we could go back to more innocent times. Yeah, like the 1950s, when there were no problems and everything wasn't black and white. Yeah, when everything everything in the 1950s was fine and didn't birth a show entirely about the paranoia of that time. Oh, you're talking about... <laughs> oh, fuck, I forgot the other show. Never mind, I fucked up the joke. <laughs> what was the other show? Oh, what was the one Spielberg directed? The shitty one, Night Gallery. Night, we didn't have. Yeah, I thought you were, oh, gonna, you were talking I about Night Gallery. Gonna, I thought you were going to go the Outer Limits. <laughs> yeah, lots of lot, lots of exciting things in this that huh. are not good. Not really. <laughs> like it um, sucks to be like this, but uh, well, let's just talk think... about the plot of the first story by John Landis. Oh, okay. Which... Can I read the opening narration? Oh, sure. Okay, because I always this is what I always love in the Twilight Zone. Even like the really like not great episodes, you know, just the doo 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 doo. Like that's the shit right there. That the narration in the movie is done by Burgess Meredith, who was in four yes. episodes of the Twilight Zone. Wait, was he really? Yeah, he was the devil in one of them. He's fucking Isa oh. all the time in the world. He's the guy who breaks his glasses. Oh. He's like the, Oh, that's the, a fantastic episode. Yeah. They showed that okay, to so. us in like fucking middle school and it's like, all right, have fun thinking about that. For Why the rest did they of the day. do that? I don't know. They were trying to teach us something. And um, it, it, it really didn't work. It just made me think of like the nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> All right, so you're about to meet an angry man, Mr. William Connor, who carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. This is a sour man, a lonely man who's tired of waiting for the breaks that come to others, but never to him. Mr. William Connor, whose own blind hatred is about to catapult him into the darkest corner of the Twilight Zone. Boom! That's a good opening. Yeah, that's the shit right there. And I want to say that, like, the... The first scene in the bar when... Because the story is the guy... Vic Morrow's character is a racist. That's the setup. And it's kind of like a naturalistic... Like, kind of eases you in. Like, I think we've occasionally been at a bar and, like, overheard someone talking like this. <laughs> you know? Maybe a little less these days. But, but it's still there. You can feel it. I mean, if you go to certain yeah. corners of the country, it's not as well hidden. Or if you watch certain news channels, they're just they're just saying it. Oh yeah, yeah. If you watch you know, <laughs> the most popular news station in this country, this is what they're talking about every day. 
<laughs> Someone find the clip when Bill O'Reilly, before he got thrown off, um, he did a report once where, like, he went to a black restaurant. And, oh, no. And was, like, shocked they had silverware. Oh, no! Yeah, this is, like, 2004. <laughs> like, Oh, God! I think they've scrubbed all memory of it, because they keep taking down the clip of him losing his mind. Oh, and, that's the only good Bill O'Reilly bit. Yeah. Which is when he, which is, what's fucked up about that is he wasn't even, you know, O'Reilly Factor Bill O'Reilly then. He was like Entertainment Tonight. <laughs> and he's confused by Sting. <laughs> he just loses it. See, that's who this episode should have been about. Bill, Bill O'Reilly. Oh, Bill Connor, Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> yeah, he has that right freak out on the set and then the, the plot of this episode happens. Oh my god. <laughs> And the plot of this episode, which I'm a little confused by what happens, to be honest. Like, not that it needs an explanation, but I'm, I'm not totally sure what they were getting at with it. Is he's a racist. Mm-hmm. He says some racist shit at a bar. He's upset that they, I, I think he got passed over for a promotion and it went to a black co-worker. Is that what it was? Um, uh, I think... Yeah, I think so. Uh, not 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 black. I think Jewish because yeah. then later in the story, uh, well, he finds Bill, time. Bill O'Reilly finds himself <laughs> in Nazi-occupied France. Yeah, well, he, this guy in the span of like five minutes finds a way to insult every minority group in the United States. Oh my God! Okay, so this is related. I swear, I've been rewatching Community for the first time in like years, and one that show holds the fuck up, mm-hmm. and two, this is just Chevy Chase's character <laughs> but without like the jokes. <laughs> it's just Pierce from Community. You're not wrong. <laughs> and Pierce, does Pierce ever end up learning a lesson? I think he just dies. Uh, well, you know, it's complicated because Chevy Chase is a notorious, like, asshole. Yeah. Um, but how they write him out of the show is actually really touching. Like, he gets, like, an Obi-Wan Kenobi-style yeah, I remember, moment Yeah, I remember Jeff. that, but, like, yeah. he, I don't think his racism was ever cured. No, no, no. But you see his father, and he's just, like, the ultimate racist. Yeah, his father's, like, somehow like, oh. more racist, yeah. which is, I mean... Yeah, Community surprisingly holds up. I was actually talking with friends the other day, and I think a big reason why Community holds up is that we haven't heard from Dan Harmon in, like, two years. Yeah, that helps. Because <laughs> like, Dan I, Harmon is also kind of like Chevy Chase. Yeah. not uh, That was not my idea. That was my friend Ethan's idea, so shout out to Ethan. Um, Yay, Ethan. Thank um, you for listening. But anyway, this guy's racist, and then he steps out of a bar... And I believe he immediately ends up in Nazi-occupied France, I think. Yes. And is, like, harassed by Gestapo agents. And then, like, he, like, they mistake him for a Jew. Like, I guess he is a Jew, like, is what they're saying. And then, like, he'll die and he'll wake up in, like, you know, KKK-era South and they're gonna, like, lynch him because he's black. But, like, he doesn't... He doesn't become black. Like, thankfully, they were smart enough to yeah. be like, oh, no, we're not going to put him in blackface or something. But it is this weird... It, there is uh, this interesting 
disconnect where people will be like accusing him of being black and he very clearly isn't mm-hmm. and uh i don't know it creates like a weird thing where like it kind of is that like reminder of how fucked up racism is <laughs> yeah it's like, like it, it's 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 the worst thing like ever but it's also <laughs> it doesn't thing make of, like, any sense yeah but it's that thing of also where we kind of chalk up racism to all this movie this this doesn't but in a lot of people's minds where it's like we just go like oh racism is stupid and irrational can't we all just see past our skin colors and we kind of ignore that a lot of economic forces tend to drive racism in this country unfortunately yeah Um, there's contributing factors of course yeah but there's there's something to i just don't understand I don't get it totally, you know? It's like... Like, what's the point of it? Like, he keeps tossing him into these, like, situations where, oh, he's now the the persecuted, and he needs... He's walking miles in the oppressed shoes that he was oppressing. Yeah. And, um... And then it's like, that's it. It's like, okay, that's... I don't even think it's, like, a wrong, like, approach for the story, but, one, the direction's not, like, that good which is kind of like all happening in front of us and two i yeah you're right i don't think it like wraps up satisfactorily just kind of here's the part where we got to get depressing i guess um yeah okay yeah because uh vic mara the actor here um was we as we mentioned was killed by a helicopter accident um the sequence that he was killed while filming he was rescuing, um, I believe he's rescuing rescuing two Vietnamese children from something. Like, they're, they're caught in the crossfire of, like, American military action, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what the full story was of what it was originally supposed to be. So it makes me wonder if maybe there was an original version where, like, when he learns to save someone, he gets out of it, you know? Yeah. And that's not how it ends um so i feel like that's what was lost in that um because if you watch it i think i i should have paid attention more but when he ends up in vietnam in this one there's like a weird disconnect where there's like footage of him running through the jungle and then like seemingly disconnected footage of american soldiers Mm-hmm. So it feels like that's what was really lost. That whatever was supposed to happen in the Vietnam sequence was lost when he was killed. Um, there's also, a, you know, this is this is where it gets weird. Because like, if it was a pickup shot, like the soldiers were like filmed in order to finish the fucking movie. Uh, Landis found time to put a joke in that sequence. <laughs> Which is, uh, one of the soldiers said we should have, um, we shouldn't have killed Captain Niedermeyer, which is a reference to Landis's earlier film, Animal House, where at the end of it, um, when it tells you what happens to everyone, it says Niedermeyer was killed in Vietnam by his own men. And, uh, huh. yeah, I hope that's not the ca- I hope that was just, they just had that footage. <laughs> I hope that wasn't a pickup shot. But, uh, yeah. And I think the famous story, um, unfortunately, is, uh, like, they violate, like, I, it's, it's really awful to go into. They, they kind of, 
misled the parents of the children that were involved. And then they shot them like, like they did it like all non-union and they shot them at hours that you're like not supposed to film children. And Mm -hmm. like allegedly Landis is famously yelling for the helicopter to go lower that's in the shot. And what happened was the helicopter was too low. There was a pyrotechnic effect. It fucked up the helicopter and the helicopter crashed down on everyone. And just awful. And it, again, it's one of those things where if you watch it, like it's it's insane that that e- it that it even exists. Like there's just there's no reason for it, you know? Yeah. Like I get that's supposed to be like the big scene of them like escaping, but you could have I don't even think you need the helicopter in the shot, frankly. But <laughs> it it's I don't know, it's it, and uh, to give some, you know, to give a little bit of leeway to John Landis. It's not like John Landis went out there trying to get people killed, you know? Like it, w- it wasn't a malicious act. But it was it was incredibly reckless, and I mean, and the guy was like working on other movies while like the lawsuit was going on, you know. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I was always I was always under the impression for a long time that John Landis's career ended when he got three people killed filming this movie, and that's not true. It's like this is just before the thriller video which is what kind of revives his career oh god and he still has like spies like us and three amigos and coming to america after this god that's right so i always thought coming to america came before no nope trading places is, is the same year i believe as this and like i want to give credit and say that nowadays something like this would never happen but, like, it took years for someone, even, like, Brian Singer, to finally stop getting work. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's... And it's even a, that's always still kind of, like, bubbling a, in the corner. It's a thing where, you know, accidents happen on sets, unfortunately, all the time. Especially when you're dealing with big, you know, stuff like this. Like, this is... It's just... It's... Usually, there's a explanation involved, you know? Like, mm-hmm. where you go, oh, um... It was an accident. Like it, it ultimately was an accident. But this is one where it was the recklessness of throwing children and an actor in the middle of a scene like that. Um, there's just not too. Usually, when you have something like this, there's usually one person maybe in the situation, and usually they're a professional stunt person. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was trained to deal. With, I mean, if you just it. It's a nightmare if you ever see that footage because Vic Morrow carrying these two children is clearly struggling with all the effects that are going on around him. And it's just like no one saw that this was a problem. Like that they like that they they decided to go through with this. And and I just think I I just feel like there had to have been another way to film it without them in the shot, you know? Yeah. Or at the very least separated enough to where they couldn't have been caught in the crossfire like that. And it's just, it's, it's just wild. Like, I, I, you know, 
and he he was found not guilty um by it but yeah it's it's not exactly in a exciting topic of conversation and, I mean, it's, it's a very I'm, sad story yeah i'm being a little kind to landis but you can look up a lot of what was said and how he handled it and draw your own conclusions i'll just say that mm. and I, like i said i guess it soured um the relationship between spielberg and landis mainly over how landis handled the aftermath i, I guess uh, there's um there are a lot of conversations between uh I believe they're called the Horror Masters that mm-hmm. Mick Garris kind of assembles every once in a while because he's a really – he's someone who obviously loves the horror film community and he, he wants everyone to just like hang out and trade stories and like talk to each other and stuff like that, right? And um, during those conversations, I guess, like it always kind of comes out that John Landis is like – he's kind of got a reputation for saying a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he <laughs> – I mean, it's very it, obvious when you watch interviews completely unrelated to the Twilight Zone that he might be a little high on his own supply. He's a, yeah, he's, he's, he's a guy. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a kind of way to put it, you know? Mm. And it, it, again, it's one of those things that was just like, yeah, the guy made a lot of movies I love, and, but no movies worth dying for, ever. Like, yeah. I guess it depends. At this stage, it'd be like, if, if a movie has to get made and Donald Trump has to die for it to get made, I'm like, fucking shoot that shit. But... Yeah. <laughs> fucking hey, let's go. Yeah. It, you know, it could be like Ghoulies 5 and it would be worth it if Donald Trump goes down. <laughs> Ghoulies retrospective. Let's get this started. Yeah, start a movie. that's not happening. <laughs> I've never seen the Ghoulies, so we're good. I saw them all once. Uh, that was it. That's en- that's <laughs> enough. Uh, not quite Puppet Master three. Nope, not not even close. All right. Hold on, before uh, I before I stop, I want to. Uh, there's a there's some book about the accident that I want to find, but I can't find it. I was hoping to just recommend it and be like, you should read up on this a little bit um but i can't seem to find it mm. it had a weird it had a weird title it was something that's the famous book where he's allegedly shouting lower to the helicopter uh, well i guess to to help transition this into um the other segments of the film before we start uh wrapping up I I think recently there's been kind of an awakening to the myth, the bullshit myth, I should add, um, of, like, having to suffer for art, you know? And, like, the tortured artist. I think that's really kind of starting to fade away. And I think a big part of that is social media, <laughs> um, which I don't always love, obviously. And especially with movie marketing, it's always... You know, sometimes it's cute, like Tom Holland being like, whoops, I dropped the Spider-Man trailer early or something like that. Like, whatever, that's harmless, you know. Um, but there is – I'm going to pull up an article from uh, Sedant Adlaka uh, who covered 
a series that was originally set to film in 2006, and it is called Dow. It was created and, I believe, directed by a man named Ilya Kurzanovsky. Uh, forgive me if I just butchered that name. But uh, it, it is a Russian program that would follow hundreds of non-professional actors and thousands of extras day and night as they lived life as if they were under the watchful eye of the KGB from uh, many, many decades ago now. And basically it was supposed to be like the most stressful cinematic environment and like production ever, right? Like a legitimate nightmare. Like there's like a bunch of bullshit behind the scenes stuff that's getting sorted out. People's like lives have basically been like ruined. And um, oh, wow. even the critical reception of it is just like monstrously disastrous. Like, oh wow. But not, not in a fun way. Like it's just kind of depressing to, to start hearing about. Right. And so stuff like that, I think are the final nail in the coffin that endangering oneself to a certain extent is not worth any artistic expression you want to hope you know? but you know i mean hey you know maybe i'm maybe i'm naively optimistic yeah i think I'm, i just think I, jury, I think we're seeing a change at least i think the jury is still out is all i'll say um not in a not in a like pessimistic way i just think that there's still an opportunity for a lot of these people to come back Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing is luckily, like, didn't Louis, Louis C.K. finally drop like another stand-up special, right? But it's probably being, it's I think being I, I haven't kept up. It's being released exclusively through his website, and so like the only people that are checking it out are like the the people that have stood by him, and like maybe critics, mm-hmm. and uh, so like I think what we've, we've unfortunately found out is that. Uh, for whatever reason, white people circle the wagons a lot of the times when other <laughs> white people are attacked. And there's there are people that will defend anything these days um, if you are white. And, you know, there's people that will be like, can't we forgive and forget? <laughs> and then move on. And... Uh, Although it, it surprisingly does not get extended to white Jews that much. But hey, who knows what that's hmm. about? <laughs> hmm. Well, who you knows? know, Matt, real what? oppression is not being able to go to the beach. Real oppression is getting your book reviewed negatively. <laughs> it's akin to book burning. <clears throat> is that what was actually said? Someone was saying that recently. Oh... Yikes! With a capital Ikes. But people are—I don't know. It's—it's it's a weird. It, we're at this weird focal. We're at this weird turning point where I have to keep reminding myself that the majority of the public is on the same page. You know, mm-hmm. that like m- the majority of us end up agreeing, but the people in power and the people empowered by the system tend to be at odds with a lot of that. And it's really just the question of how much longer can they ride that out, you know? Like, I have to keep reminding myself that, like, that whenever I see, like, all these fucking idiots going out protesting, being like, reopen the country, and 
whenever I see that getting headway and getting news coverage and all this stuff, I have to remind myself that this is a that this entire country only functions because democracy isn't extended to 100% of citizens. That if it was, shit would totally turn the other way. <laughs> and I have to remind myself that so I don't lose faith in things getting better at some point. So I guess we'll see. But, uh, yeah. What's Brian Singer up to these days? Well, hey, to, to go back to a positive note, not much. So he, was, he, was, he almost did the Red Sonja movie, right? He he did, and then everyone was like, we're not touching that shit with a 10-foot pole. Mm. So then they were like, fine, we'll, we'll hire someone else. Which Robert Rodriguez was going to do at one point. Yeah. Well, he's like Del Toro, where they're like attached to like a dozen different things just in case they don't work out. Yeah. And that usually works out pretty well for them. So. Oh yeah, they usually get paid to develop things that never get made. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, that's also nice. That's that. That'd be great to have a name like that. Oh yeah. But uh, yeah. Hey, speaking of Brian Singer and Red Sonia, <laughs> uh, there's that. There's a great documentary about John Milius. Um, have you seen it? Uh, I have not. It's really good. It's just called Milius. Um, and they interview like they that guy. Whoever directed it got, like, everyone. Like, they interviewed Spielberg in it. They interviewed George Lucas. And somehow they got Michael Mann. Wow. And they didn't cry after? No, I mean, he's his interview is substantially shorter than others. So okay. <laughs> I'm willing to bet uh, Michael Mann's notorious difficulty in interviews maybe uh, was a problem. But I, they got enough. And they talked about John Milius writing an episode of Miami Vice. Uh, but inexplicably, in the middle of it, is Brian Singer. And they're interviewing Brian Singer, and I, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> like, everyone in it has some connection to Milius, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they either, like, produced the film he was in, or, like, were at least part of, like, that era of filmmakers. And... And then they just have Brian Singer in it for some reason. And I, I don't know why. And he, and he specifically is there to talk about... Uh, he talks about Conan the Barbarian. And like that, that movie's influence on the genre. And I just found that so odd. Does someone have an explanation for that? I mean, maybe he like weaseled his way into getting that project like as, as early as that documentary then. Yeah, I know he was always talked about for the movie before people knew. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, like, if you want to know how my uh, opinion shifted on someone <laughs> when I watched that documentary when it came out, I was like, "Oh boy, it's Brian Singer." And when I watch the documentary now, I'm like, "Oh fuck, it's Brian Singer." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we haven't talked about the segment by the director, whose retrospective this is. Oh yeah, kick the can. It's a remake of the episode Kick the Can. <laughs> Scatman Crothers is in it. Yeah, he's great. He's a magic black man. Yeah, yeah. All Stephen King books need him. Mm. Although, uh, Stephen King, thankfully, was kept far away from this. But maybe not thankfully. Maybe he could have written something all right. Yeah, yeah. 
Maybe they'd they'd clash in interesting ways, you know, the styles at least. He's got a great story called like Crouch End that feels like a Twilight Zone story. Or the Jaunt. Oh, the Jaunt would have been like a perfect Twilight Zone esque story. You ever read Not the Jaunt? Not in the Tall Grass. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a great story. The movie, not so much. No. Have you ever read The Jaunt? No, I haven't. That's your homework. They read The Jaunt. Okay. Because it's a short story, and it's like, and by short, I mean short. And it's it just has one of like the best, most terrifying endings ever. It's great. It'll keep you up at night. All right, all right. I trust you. I trust you. Yeah, this will be like the time I recommended. I have no mouth and I must scream. Hey, I was about to say, like, after that recommendation, I kind of, like, am down to read whatever you recommend. But also, I'm preparing for, like, very disturbing it, dreams. It's, uh, it's, it's Stephen King, so it's not as disturbing as Harlan Ellison, but it still is fairly disturbing. Um, <laughs> but Kick the Can is not disturbing. No, it's no. Not... It's kind of a... It's a good-natured story. Yeah, it's like it's a goofy story of a bunch of old folks living in an old folks' home. I would say the best thing in this is the old man who's getting dropped off. It's his first day, you know? Mm. Very clearly being abandoned by his family, <laughs> you know? Uh, and he ends up being, like, a huge asshole and, like, hating people and being angry. And... Uh, Scatman Crothers is there, and he's like, you know, just because we're old doesn't mean we can't do anything. And he's like, Let, we should play a game of Kick the Can, which is a game I guess children played at one point. I've never played Was Kick it, the though? Can. Yeah, it, it, Kick yeah. the Can feels like a game that they made up. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to hide the like, fact that, like, to hide, like, racial segregation in the 50s, they made up the game Kick the Can. <laughs> To pretend it was a more if, wholesome era. I think it, it feels to me like when you're reading like those old textbooks, like you went to the store and Dave gave you 37 watermelons. You left with 38 potatoes. How many <laughs> apples? You know, like that kind of yeah. bullshit. Where it's like no one thinks like this. <laughs> or it feels like, like one of those stories that it's like like stickball where it's like it's depression era, abject poverty, like dressed up as a cute thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like oh, this... you know what? This it's Song of the South. A little bit. <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, yeah, everything was fun. I don't know. Kick the can. It must be real. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't even know. How do you play? Well, you you get a can. <laughs> yeah, I, I understood that part. <laughs> and then you give it a little kick. Not too hard though. Cause like they play kick the can at the at the one point of the film of the story whatever, and uh, I don't really understand what's happening. But the one woman kicks the can and that's like a big deal. Well, this can's magic. So. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they all all the old people go out one night when they're not supposed to and play kick the can, and in the middle of playing. They all become young kids again. And they're, uh, that's, it's a, it's a, I like the transition from old people to young kids. I thought that was pretty good where they just kind of like, they zoom out, they like, they just film like the sky and then you hear the voices change. Mm -hmm. I really like that. 
Um, and then they go, hey, you can be young again now. I, I, Scatman Crow is like, I made you young because I'm a magic black man. And they're like, hey, but our childhoods actually sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go through that again. And then he's like, all right, you can be old people again. Except the one chooses not to be. He's, he chooses to stay a kid. And I'll be honest. <laughs> look, like I get it. The message is fine. That like childhood is like it's always rosier when you look back at it. Like fine, right? I think we can all agree mm-hmm. on that. Two, just because you're old doesn't mean you have to like you know you can still like be young at heart. Again, I agree. Um, but if a magic can makes you young again, <laughs> <laughs> thereby giving you an extra maybe 75 years on this earth i don't know i'd roll those dice it depends how bad your childhood was i guess i guess but you, just because you're turned into a kid doesn't mean you have to relive your childhood now sure but then like i guess if because you're taking it very literally like as a fantasy yeah, yeah. as like you know as a fable like well, it, would, it fits perfectly fine i wouldn't take it that literally if one of them didn't choose to remain a kid hmm like it that's part of it is that (laughs) like would you prefer if all of them like remained as children then we're like we can kind of give it a shot again together i would just i just i'm just a little bit like i think the messaging is a little muddled which you know what that's that's kind of in the twilight zone's nature a lot of those episodes are like that (laughs) but like this time around i just i watch it and it's I don't know, like, I'm not, I'm trying not to be, like, a CinemaSins, like, flaws in the story, but. <laughs> no, I don't think you're nitpick. I think you're, you're bringing up, like, a fair criticism. You're not, you're not dinging it or some shit. Like, I'm, I, like, I, like, you know, it's not like these people become young. Like, the, the real problem is that suddenly you're an orphan. <laughs> like, that's a. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a problem. But, like, they keep being like, but when I was young, my father died. I don't want to relive that. And it's kind of like, well, you're not going to relive that. Like, yeah, it's not a time travel story. Yeah, you, you're not a, you're not back to being yourself as a kid again. And, and even then, to be honest, it's like, A, like, let's say if you did go back in time and suddenly you had to relive your childhood again, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're all supposed to live life without regrets, but I I believe we all have a lot of things we would do differently. (laughs) Yeah. Mainly, I would invest in Netflix, but hey. (laughs) (laughs) Because I did, this this is a true story, I took economics in high school, as we all probably did, which was the, which was, economics and psychology were both taught by the same woman, and they were, she was a low-key racist teacher, (laughs) Mm. And she was also the worst teacher I had, and she failed me. Uh. Um, yeah, that's a long story. But uh, we had to do a game called the stock market game where we pretended to invest in stocks. And I chose Netflix right before the Netflix uh, streaming launched. And if I had really invested, I could have made millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> With money, I probably could have gotten a hold of if I had harassed relatives long enough. Uh. So you want to talk about some things I've thought about late at night. 
when worried about paying medical bills. Yeah, okay. You know. <laughs> but but again, if you're doing the um, the kick the can version of this, you don't get that opportunity. Again. Yeah, it, it's just it's just I'm saying like both sides are kind of a little weird. Okay, okay. You know. I'm not trying. I'm really trying not to like dig into it too much. It's just I'm. I think that both messagings of the first two stories are a little muddled, and are fine. I mean, at the end of it, there's a uh, there's that there's that sad moment where the old man is asking the kid old man to take him with him, mm-hmm. and it's just and then at the end we see that like oh you know now they're gonna live like even though they're at the the twilight years. Twilight Zone, haha. Uh-huh. Uh, um, even though they're at the end of their life, they're still gonna live every day like it's their last and live it to the fullest. And you see, like, and then Scatman Crothers leaves and goes to the next uh, retirement home. And it's gonna, well, you know, the implication is that that's what he does. He just goes around doing that. And this one was directed by Spielberg. Yeah, and it's. It's just—it's all fine. Yeah, it's all fine. It just feels like this Spielberg kind of phoned this one in. Yeah, and that's not a feeling I ever get from him, honestly. Like yeah. even his misfires, like I'm, I'm never really bored. Yeah, honestly, the bigger complaint you can make about Spielberg is some of his stories. It feels like he put too much effort into. Yeah, it's like you've spent this much time making the fucking terminal. <laughs> you built an airport to film the fucking terminal like that's that's where it's like the guy like working overtime for something that doesn't deserve it but hey oh but hey the next segment oh I thought you were gonna say something <laughs> No, 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 I, I had nothing after all. I was like, maybe something will the, come to me, but no, no, ne- no. Next segment is an ad up, is a remake of the Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life, done by Joe Dante. And uh, Joe Dante, just as Joe Dante does, just fills the thing with tons of his references to old media. <laughs> and uh, It's a Good Life, for those who don't know, is the story about... Uh, a young child with godlike powers who just he keeps adults in total fear because they have to please him and serve him or else do horrible things to them. And this is actually kind of a, more for the Twilight Zone franchise as a whole. This episode uh, got a sequel from the revival series in the 90s with Forrest oh, Whitaker, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And it's, it's actually like a solid sequel to the story like they even bring back some of the same actors and stuff like that except for the kid obviously you know it can't be the same kid because just time but like i think it's cloris leachman was in the original and she comes back for the sequel one and it's like yeah that that's a really fun pair of episodes and it it leaves with like the scariest implication ever (laughs) oh i haven't i haven't seen i'll have to check that out then oh okay yeah check it out it it's solid Wow, that's that's, um, a, that's a good it's a good idea to do it like that, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, this this is one of my favorite Twilight Zone stories. So revisiting the movie was uh, more exciting because it that paid off. <laughs> like it's it's a good section of the film. Yeah, and I like it. And this one mixes it up a little more 
than uh, it's it's not just a straight remake of the episode mm-hmm. where uh, how do you say it? Like the basically that s- episode starts and ends with that kid being an asshole, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and being evil. And this one, the kid is more just like a kid, you know, who has you can tell that at one point was a monster (laughs) and is now at this weird point where like he doesn't want to be a monster anymore but he doesn't know how to do it you know because he's this godlike creature yeah and at the end of the day a kid yeah like like... It's, it's an interesting um argument that like a kid with that sort of ability would do the horrible stuff they do but then at some point crave trying to be good but not knowing how um which is just that i don't know that's a that's an interesting take on that character this is going to be kind of a weird pull but like i think it's kind of like when you used to play grand theft auto and it's like <laughs> really fun to just go around and basically be like a psychopath in a video game for like half an hour but then after that you're just kind of like well, now what? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I did that. And that's fiction. That's not real life. And obviously yeah. this story is also fiction and not real life. But I don't know. I just found that fascinating because this predates that feeling you could get from a video game. Mm-hmm. And it also is exactly how I remember feeling in high school when I would do that in a video game. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, that's... It's really interesting to me that yeah. that art kind of traveled through time like that. You know what it reminds me of? Something sane. Um, um did you ever read uh whatever happened to the man of tomorrow? Uh, the, the Superman comic, right? Yeah, the, the Alan Moore quote unquote final Superman story <laughs> which was closing uh, the book on like the original Superman when they decided to reboot the DC universe in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Um and that one, like, the ultimate villain at the end of it is revealed to be Mr. Um, McSplicknick. Oh, hang on. I actually know this. Mr. Mike, Mike's a Spitlick. Mr. Mr. Spitlick. Um, voiced by Gilbert Gottfried in the animated show. Yeah, which is just fucking perfect. <laughs> which is perfect casting. And uh, But in that, it's revealed that he's, like, you know, the being from the fifth dimension who can do anything. And at the end, he reveals, like, yeah, I spent a lot of time trying to be good, and then I decided to play pranks on people. And he's like, now I think I'm going to spend the next million years being evil. Because <laughs> I can, because I'm like a god. And he's like, maybe after that, I'll I'll feel bad about it for a million years. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, 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 that sounds about right. <laughs> there you go. And this one, it, this one is, like, darkly hysterical. Like, it's, it's genuinely suspenseful, like the scene when fucking poor Kevin McCarthy has to pull the rabbit out of the hat, <laughs> <laughs> and it just keeps going. <laughs> and uh, but um, it's both funny and frightening. I think uh, in a very playful uh, yeah, way. Yeah, I, I would agree. In a very yeah, I mean, because like the the baseline like metaphor for this kind of story, I think. Is just about, like, parenthood, Obvi- mm-hmm. obviously, but, like, hear me out for a second. Like, a, a badly behaved child will, like, throw a tantrum or something like that, right? And you just don't want to set it off. 
it's not the literal end of the world, but this story kind of like extrapolates that and makes yeah. that possible. <laughs> like, it and feels I mean, like it, the end of the world to an adult, but then it, it will actually become that now. It's also just the general fear of the implication of children, which is that, you know, there's the generation that's going to replace you at some point. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but have to take care of you in the in the later years of your life. <laughs> so, and in your eyes, they're always going to be those children, you know. But yeah, it it's it's frightening when you think about like every generation has to go through it, and rightly or wrongly. But when you have to realize that the generation you raised is now the dominant voting block in the country. <laughs> Hope they make the right choices. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's really, it's a little simplistic. It's more complicated just, than that, yeah. of course. But Well, it's the famous Kurt Vonnegut quote where he's like, true terror is waking up to realize your high school class is running the country. Which is like, <sighs> a frightening thought at times. <laughs> There's only a couple I'm worried about, if I'm being honest. But yeah. still... There's Still, only a couple it's not I'm just my about. high school class. There's only a couple I'm worried about, too, and I'm in contact with all of them. So, <laughs> it's an interesting window. <laughs> well, most people in my high school class now have children, or are married. Don't know what that's about. Well, yeah, I got invited to my second wedding today. So, a very optimistic person who thinks that they're going to be able to have it in November. Yeah, not to get too heavy right now, even though this is the episode we talked about the helicopter incident. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't think people are fully comprehending just how bad it's going to get later. Mm-hmm. And how we're definitely not going back to, quote-unquote, normal. <laughs> well, that's, you kind of, in a way, you kind of hope that. But it seems like right now we got comfortable with the fact that this was, uh, the the coronavirus was predominantly affecting um, black and brown and poor people. <laughs> yeah. And if that's the case, we, we will be able to incorporate this into our daily lives very easily. But if it starts killing white motherfuckers, then we'll panic. Mm. Middle class white motherfuckers. Whatever happened to Kathleen uh, uh, Quinlan? I have she's no really, idea. She's really good in this. As the new woman the kid brings home. I know. I, I don't know. Let's see who else is in this one. Uh, Nancy Cartwright, of oh, course. Oh, yeah, Nancy who, Cartwright. Uh, yeah. Uh, Dick Miller, uh, a uh, Joe Dante regular, and <laughs> that guy, R.I.P., the great Dick Miller. Yeah, that guy, Dick Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, as I said, from the original um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes. Who pops up in tons of joe dante films yeah and for for those that don't uh keep up with or i guess no one really keeps up with him for those that don't follow the work of joe dante uh, i'd recommend basically everything he's ever done yeah um like i haven't seen his uh i guess we'll say recent output and i'm not keen to check it out i guess too he did a movie called the hole that i really liked in like 2000 nine and it's like you watch it and it's like oh this is a joe dante movie <laughs> it looks a little too like you're a generic horror film but there's enough dante in it to like overshadow that 
I don't know. I liked it. Mm. Well, I'll check it out. I still got to check out the the Carpenter, um, Master of Horror stuff. Oh yeah, oh, yeah I found. Uh, I was looking on Amazon a couple weeks back, and it, um, the Masters of Horror se- first season was like seven dollars. Wow! So I got it, and then I found out it's all for free on Tubi currently. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but hey, it's just seven dollars. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it a physical copy? Um, no, no, I, I did digital. It, it, it was. Oh, okay, it, okay. The physical copies were a little more expensive. Let's see. But, and God, that's a series that would I feel like would have done a lot better nowadays. Yeah, t- now would be the time to do Masters of Horror. Yeah. Although when I watch it, I kind of understand why it didn't take off because the quality is varying. Mm. Even when they're good, even when like they're all kind of good, at least so far. And it's more of a, they're completely different. And they all, you know, most of them aren't scary in the traditional way. Um, to bring it back to Toby Hooper, um, his Dance of the Dead one I really liked. But it was, like, incredibly mean and nihilistic. Oh. Yeah, but it had Robert England in it. Oh, so it's a masterpiece. Yeah, and he's, he's really hamming it up. As like a yeah, I love that guy, vampire zombie type guy in the post-apocalypse. I think. Oh wow! There's, there's so a I lot am... of ideas going on in Dance of the Dead. Okay, well I'm really eager to check that one out now, especially now that I know it's on Tubi. Yep, check it out. A lot of stuff on Tubi for some reason. Yeah, I I don't know what that is. Uh, also, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur. But anyways, let's check. Let's check yeah, out well, see, the that's last a, short. That's the thing about how you got to go through a lot of shit to get to the good stuff on Tubi. <laughs> Let, let's talk about the last segment then. We can we can start wrapping up. Yes, uh, the last the fourth segment. segment uh, well, I guess the epilogue we talked about too. Nightmare at twenty thousand feet, which I think might be the most popular Twilight Zone episode. It's the like one, there's there's yeah. stuff for horror fans that that people recognize like it's a cookbook is for horror fans the um eye of the beholder horror fans know but this is the one that's like a pop culture staple yeah I think everyone just knows it because it's been referenced so much and this is directed by George Miller um right off of Mad Max Two the Road Warrior. Um, and I mean, I, I love Giordante's segment. This one is by far and away the best segment in the in the anthology. Yeah, I I'd agree with that. I, I like the Joe Dante one a lot. So I don't know about far and away, but it mm. it is the best one. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, like George Miller. I think we're only now kind of realizing that that guy was kind of operating on a different level for decades, <laughs> and no one noticed. Yeah, he's. This is gonna be like. People are going to be pissed that we didn't recognize that sooner. Yeah. You know, because like, he's really up there right now. Mm-hmm. And he's talked about doing, like, having Fury Road introduce basically another Mad Max trilogy. And I don't want to be, like, a downer, but I don't know if mm-hmm. he's going to be able to complete that vision I at am, his age. I am fine if there, if Fury Road is the last one. Like, oh, no. I, I am, too, because that's just, like, the best movie ever. Like, without hyperbole, that might be, like, a top ten movies of the last 50 years situation. Yeah, it's uh, that movie is amazing. 
Yeah. Um, I I just I want him to be happy. That's it. <laughs> isn't his isn't his next movie like a romantic fantasy film about a genie? I I have no idea. <laughs> I, I genuinely do not know. It's like um I forget it's called like three thousand years of something. Oh shit. Sorry, drop my mic again. No, that's okay, that's okay. Let me know so when you're cut, good. It's called like three thousand years of something, and it's gonna star Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. Oh, okay, so and awesome. I, and I heard it's about a genie falling in love with someone. And but I don't know who's playing the genie. It's one of those things where like either of those characters can play the either of those actors can play the genie, and I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I've seen a lot of uh, After Fear Road, of course. Like I got really interested in like his interviews and filmography and stuff like that. And he's gone on record for saying that Witches of Eastwick, uh, which I have not seen, so I can't argue the quality of, but was a very difficult production for him. Uh, and Jack Nicholson, he's always been grateful for for really going to bat for him against the studio because the studio yeah. was kind of fighting him on every step of the way. But he did go to say that it was even more difficult because coming off Twilight Zone, he had such a really like great time making his segment, oh. and that it was a really quality introduction into the um, like the Hollywood like I guess pantheon, so to mm. speak. Because, you know, yeah. Mad Max was just, like, in the outback of Australia. And then it yeah. got popular, and he got money to do a second one. And Thunderdome was more like they, it was just Mad Max with some studio backing, you know? Yeah. And he also, like, beyond Thunderdome, didn't they, like, co-direct that one? Like, that one has, like, uh, a weird production history. Yeah, because someone passed away on the set of that one as well. Mm. I think it was a friend of his, right? Yeah, there was someone with uh, yeah, like well the producer who kinda was like basically his co, you know, guy when it came to all the Mad Max films, died in like a plane crash just in the middle of filming. Oh uh, that's tragic. I think it was like either that or a helicopter crash or something like that. Like an accident like unrelated to the production. Oh. Um, yeah, Byron well, that, Kennedy. That's good at least. And it, it's unfortunate. I think like his heart kinda like that's why there's such an uneven tone with Beyond Thunderdome. Because mm-hmm. he got out of it. And then he, of course, like you said, does Witches of Eastwick, which is a very difficult production. Then he does Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> like this drama film, which is really good, but like bombed horribly at the box office. Aww. And then he was like, he was ready to do Babe, but he was so like burned out. He was like, he gave it to like a protege. And then he spent the whole time making that movie fighting with the protege over who had ultimate creative control. Because, like, he kind of regretted not doing it. <laughs> and then Babe comes out and, like, it's, like, Oscar nominations and, like, makes a hundred million dollars. <laughs> and then he's like, fuck it, I'm doing the sequel. And then the sequel's one of the most insane films ever made. <laughs> and it's the darkest film ever made and it flops horribly at the box office. Yeah, for comparison, Babe Pig in the City was made for... Oh, shoot, I just lost it. Babe Pig in the City was made for $90 million, and it only made $69 nice, million at the box office. Babe made or was made for $30 million. Do you, do you know how much it made? How, how much? 
and $54 million. Mm-hmm. Well, then. Yeah. So, pretty big drop-off. Yeah. But also, mm-hmm. both babes are among the best family films ever made. Yeah, they're both amazing, and they're both at the... They're both polar opposites. <laughs> and as a child who saw pa- Babe, Pig, in the City when it was in theaters, don't show Babe, Pig, in the City to children. I have never been more aware of the certainty of death <laughs> than watching Babe, Pig, in the City. <laughs> I was waiting for you to add something, so there it is. Which is a movie I love, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got the weirdest filmography ever. I know. <laughs> And after that bombing, he was like, fuck it, I'm doing Happy Feet. <laughs> Which is an odd pivot. Yeah, and then, of course, Happy Feet 2. Uh, also kind of a bomb. It was made for $130 million, only made 150 And I gotta find it. Hang on, this is, this is the greatest quote of all time. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Happy Feet 3 quote. The only mention of a third Happy Feet film comes from an interview in which director George Miller was asked if he had any plans for Happy Feet 3. Quote, if you put a gun to my head and said, you have to come up with a story for Happy Feet 3, I'd say, shoot me. I would have no idea. I really would have no idea. <laughs> it's more positive with the full context. He says, like, stories creep up on you. You have to allow the stories to come. And then they get and like, little earworms in your head and they won't go away. If that happens and we got the energy, we'll do it. Is a... It, it, Will do it is a fantastic movie. A third one, I think the quote is gets muddled by this fan account, but the opening is like internet legend now yeah, because that's of a that. Good, that's, a, that's a good way to open. Yeah, <laughs> which is also good. why it's important to read the full stories you're reporting on. I just like that he was working on Justice League, like in in the middle of both of those. Yeah, when he almost did the Justice, Justice League, League Mortal. Yeah, and then he was like, fuck it, I'm doing Happy Feet too." <laughs> yeah, um, Justice League Mortal, which is also kind of legend. There's so many pockets of, like, legendary film history with George Miller. It's great, yeah, but, like, like that, he, that's, like, one of the big ones. He almost did, like, so many insane films. Yeah. And, uh, have you read the script for Justice League Mortal? Yes, it's fucking insane. Yeah, it's and, also, I don't think it would have been very good. It, do- it mostly doesn't work, but it's George Miller. Yeah, no, so it would have been interesting. I, I don't think it would have been boring at all. I think it uh, would have been one of those things where we would have walked away from it being like, that was really, didn't make a lot of sense, but that was the best superhero action we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been a little bit, a little akin to the Sam, the Raimi Spider-Man movies. Had it been made. <sighs> Don't don't say that. Don't put that in my head. That's so beautiful. Hey, back when, <laughs> like, when we gave these superhero movies to people with actual visions. Yeah. I, mm, see, I don't even want to say that because it's not always about the director. Sometimes it's very clear now more than ever that these are producer-driven properties. Yeah. So and Kevin, that, yeah, that's just, the big problem. We just criticized Kevin Feige for telling the same goddamn story over and over again. Um... That's the good finale for we the movie. We didn't even talk about that. We didn't even talk about Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. Okay, okay. Well, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. John Lithgow's great. John Lithgow is fantastic. Uh, you know, the first time I saw John Lithgow, where Dexter. Oh, hey. Yeah, he's a terrifying serial killer in a not 
great show that definitely probably doesn't hold up. You know where I? <laughs> but he's really good. John Lithgow. Shrek. Oh shit! Is he Lord Fuckwad? Yeah. Okay. Well then, and never mind. I redact my statement. His name's on the poster. Oh god, that's amazing. Was good for him. Myers, Diaz, Murphy, Lithgow. <laughs> I want to say there's a scene in the Nightmare on Twenty Thousand at Twenty Thousand Feet where the the monster. Um, I you better fucking know the story to this listener because I'm not explaining it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the gremlin appears in the window, and I was watching it with friends once, and it scared a friend so much they went home. <laughs> Wait, really? Yes. Oh, fantastic. They lived across the street, so they just walked out of my house and went home. It has never been... This is kind of the alien, the thing, like, circumstance for me, where it's never, like, actually scared me. Because in the original series, it is just a goofy gremlin costume, you know? Like, maybe at the time, if I was a kid... This is like a dude in an ape costume. Yeah, it's it's like a big fuzzy teddy bear. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, um, but like if I had seen that at the time as a kid, like then maybe that would have been like petrifying, you know, but uh, the filmmaking of that original episode and this segment of the film uh, is very good, though. And I think it, it actually stands the test of time. Twilight Zone. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I don't know. Would you recommend it? Um, it's on. It's easy to watch. It's on TV. Give it a shot. Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, tune in at the halfway point. Yeah, really, like, you don't even need to see the first two. Yeah. Which is crazy, because one of them is directed by Spielberg. Yeah. Sorry, Steve. You'll make it up to me with West Side Story, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. it's important to please the fans of, of your work. That's all movies are now pleasing fans here's the real question about west side story mm-hmm. um i believe steven sondheim who's still alive <laughs> against all odds is still alive <laughs> despite definitely doing coke in the 70s is still alive <laughs> um he famously did not like the original film adaptation of west side story and one of his big gripes was that uh, in the play, you know, people, when instead of fighting, they dance, right? Like, that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's what you do when you're on a Broadway stage, but if you're doing a movie, it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also, like, the one thing people really know about the movie. So what is... Is Spielberg just going to do the dancing? I don't know. I, I'd be interested to see like how he's gonna mix the two because i think he'll mix I, I think there'll be some dance fighting and then like straight up like fisticuffs and is that a good idea i don't know i'm very this also feels like a movie that was greenlit because greatest showman was like a big hit and then that's why we got cats i do want to say that if it wasn't spielberg remaking it i would also be like why are you bothering like you're not going to do any better. <laughs> yeah. Although with the, with the casting, you could probably not brown people up. I yeah, think people would be okay with that. That's the bonus of doing it. 
you know? Yeah. That's yeah. like, the, all right, we'll fix that problem now. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, other than that, it's like, hey, why? Like, I, I don't know. This guy, what, would, what would be a better musical for Spielberg to do? Honestly, just just give him an original one. Yeah, I guess, but like, if he's if you're, people are only allowed to direct IPs now, so mm. like you got to give him one. You should do Assassins. Nah. I, I I do not know Assassins. It's, it's Stephen Sondheim. It's a musical about all the people who have assassinated presidents of the United States. That's not real. It's it's real. It's great. No, it's not. It's There's the no best. way. That's you gotta, real. I think it's the last musical Sondheim did. I I don't believe this. Come on and kill a president. <laughs> no, that's a fake song. No, it's that's the opening song. <laughs> 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 Which I believe is no. called It's called something like everyone has the right to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. And it's a guy like giving guns to all the assassins. <laughs> and it's like feeling down, kill a president. Oh, that's incredible. No, th- I don't believe this is real. Assassins is great. It's one of those ones where it's like right now is the perfect and absolute worst time to do an adaptation <laughs> of Assassins. <laughs> okay, yeah, give that to Spielberg. But yeah. have him bring around like his AI minority report level nihilism. Yeah, it would be interesting. The problem is that it's like it's a plotless musical, you know? Well, so was Cats and that worked out perfectly. Yeah. I get it. You said the thing. (laughs) But it's like, yeah, it's more just like they go from assassin to assassin and they get a song. Oh, God. They they even bring oh my on, god I need it, this it's really good they even bring on the failed assassins <laughs> it's like all the people that tried to assassinate the president and failed oh my god oh my god John Hinckley no. sings a sings a love song <laughs> to America has never needed anything more yeah. than it needs assassins it's great um, someone's gonna pull that quote. Of what I just said. <laughs> no, yeah, that's not, not, not the way you should phrase that, Diego. <laughs> the film. The film. <laughs> what America needs is assassins. <laughs> what did Diego know? <laughs> Why was assassins. Diego on the grassy knoll? The Revival of Assassins won five Tony Awards. Oh, there we go. There's a movement happening. I feel it. There you go. Um, oh, do you want to talk about the, the epilogue so we can stop recording now? Uh, Sure. Dan Aykroyd shows back up. Why is Dan Aykroyd in the weirdest Spielberg movies? I don't know. <laughs> He's also in Temple of Doom. <laughs> which... Is, yeah, so 1941, Twilight Zone, and Temple of Doom. That's oh, a fuck. that's an interesting run. Wait, is he in Temple of Doom? Like, really? I don't yeah, yeah. The, uh, the when Indiana Jones is getting on the plane, and there's a guy doing a very clearly fake kind of British accent. That's Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> oh my god. 
We chartered a plane for you, Mr. Jones. Twilight Zone. The movie. Remember when Dan Aykroyd was in Pearl Harbor? <laughs> oh my god. And he's, like, great in it. But all he has to do is basically, like, give opinions on things. <laughs> he's the one man who saw Pearl Harbor coming. <laughs> Oh my god, Michael Bay should finally get his musical. Yeah, if he honestly, if if Michael Bay does a musical, all sins will be forgiven. <laughs> he should do Assassins. Fuck it. Oh my god, that's it. He would do it like Michael so Bay's wrong. He would do it Assassins. so wrong it would come around to being correct. Yes. I'm going to go listen to Assassins when this is over. Fuck it. I'm gonna check it out for the first time now. It's really good. Look, look for the off-Broadway recording. I really like that recording. All right. You know, I think then... uh, I think the Broadway recording. It's uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, that narrows it down. Hey, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, the guy from uh, How I Met Your Mother, Doctor Doctor Horrible. Oh, Neil Patrick Harris. Yes, I believe he was a little the ashamed. The Whedon one is what got me. Yeah, hey, well, something worked. <laughs> Problematic white Whedon, men win again. Whedon has definitely been trying to do Sondheim for a while now. <laughs> oh, it's not even like it's not a secret. He wants to do a musical. Which uh, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna ape from the right someone, might as well from the best. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Credit where it's due. The Buffy musical is fucking like amazing yeah. yeah i like dr horrible honestly even oh, if it's... i forget that's a musical too yeah even if it's like it's a little weird <laughs> but it's, it's, it's whatever yeah <laughs> they never did that sequel yep oh well remember they wrote Matt... that because of the writer's strike <laughs> oh yeah because they were all fucking bored yeah, everyone was like, we gotta prove that we can do things, even though there's a writer's strike. And they <laughs> did, I guess. Yeah. That was, like, a big deal. That's what's funny about it. Like, you look at it now, and it's it's just kind of, like, fine. But, like, it was, like, a huge deal for the industry when it happened. Yeah, it was, like, number one on iTunes and shit during all of that. Like, it that was crazy. Whedon, where but... yet? <laughs> We're all going oh, crazy under quarantine. <laughs> Just do some more um, of that Shakespeare bullshit. Well, he's got a new show on HBO coming out. It's supposed to be this fall. It's probably going to be later now. But mm. What is it? Uh, it's about a bunch of female badasses in Victorian England fighting monsters and stuff. Oh, I'm sure he'll handle that well. Yeah, no. Everyone's super excited about that yeah that's why i just heard about it just now (laughs) (laughs) oh matt you could let people know where to hear about you on the internet good 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 job diego (laughs) i tried really hard why do we like fall apart in doing these i don't get it this one shouldn't have been difficult like at all no, it was like as long as the movie again. Why do we yeah. keep doing that? I don't know. And we barely talked about the movie. <laughs> but I guess that's what the five people who listen to this regularly want. So <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome, Dan and Ethan. 
Yeah, thanks for uh, listening. I guess. <laughs> This has been our. This has been the podcast where I recommend assassins. <laughs> you gotta let people know where they can. Oh find yes, you. I'm Emperor Otn One <laughs> at Twitter.com, and I am streaming every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitch at Emperor Otn. And I'm putting those in the descriptions now for, for all future reference, so you're and welcome. you've been Matt. streaming a little bit. I have. I'm trying to work out a, a schedule. I think I might just do Fridays, you mm. know, like Friday nights uh, and just kind of play some movie tie-in games because that's oh, what I have. <laughs> that worked out uh, like so the well thing. the last time. Oh, I'm going to finish that fucking thing game. Yeah. Good luck with God that. is my witness. Uh, and of course, you can find me at the Diego Crespo on Twitter. Check out the Waffle Press on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes, along with our Patreon, where you're going to get a couple of these episodes early because Matt and I are we're going to get back on this roll. This, this, we're going to get back on the ball. What we're going to get fuck? back on this roll. <laughs> we're going to roll it out. Roll it I out. Have to close Diego. the window because it. It's but, it's just hot air coming in, and now it's just hot in this room, and I think it's having an effect on we're gonna, me. We're going to bust a move, Diego. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to... Yeah. I'm going to go see about some assassins. going to wrap it up. We're going to rock it out. We're going <laughs> to... Thanks for listening. We're going to kill a president. <laughs> no. <laughs> We've been professionally unprofessional. Bye.